If you have your Bibles with you today, I hope you do, uh, open up to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to continue on with the next letter, uh, which is to the church in Philadelphia. I'm sure uh, most of you at some point in your life have had a splinter in your finger or in your foot maybe. You probably had a pebble in your, in your shoe. Uh, and the, the, these little tiny things like this can, can create a big problem and, uh, and can have a big impact on, uh, on, on you. One time uh, back years ago, our church used to do mission trips to St. Thomas. Some of you all may remember that. Uh, we would go to St. Thomas and do vacation Bible schools and uh, do uh, like a revival service preaching on, Sunday, on, on the nights during the week and, and different things like that. And, uh, and we had gone one year and, and I, went, I went with the church that year and one of our, uh, during one of our free times, we, were, uh, we went to one of the beaches. And they've got some private beaches you have to pay to get in and some public beaches. And so we went to one of those, and uh, some of us were out in the water, and we were uh, kind of in a, in a circle, I guess, like a loose circle, and we were throwing a beach ball back and forth to one another. Um, and someone threw the ball to someone, and it got past them and, and started floating out into the ocean, right? We were kind of there in the in the bay close to the shore. It started floating out into the ocean, and so I said, oh, I said, I'll get it, and so I went chasing after it, right? And, and beach balls, as you know, are really light, and so they float really fast uh, in, in a current in the ocean, and so I'm chasing it. I'm, I'm not even close to it. I never catch it. It goes away. That's the end of that game. We can't play anymore because it, it gets away from me. But, but in that, in that attempt to try to get that ball, I came up on this rock that was there in the ocean, and I... Uh, kicked off the rock to try to get some momentum, you know, to try to get the ball. And uh, something was on the rock. I don't know what it was, but whatever it was, I stepped on it and it stung the bottom of my foot, right? And it was just these tiny little, tiny little things, tiny little stingers. Uh, there were probably five or six of them in, my, in the bottom of my foot. And it, and it was hurting so bad. And I came out on the beach and was complaining about it. I made up oh, this, this whole story to try to, you know, uh, try to uh, redeem myself and and I said this big mama sea urchin like grabbed my foot and was trying to take me back to the, to the lair to feed her babies and all that kind of stuff. That's not really what happened. It was a tiny little sea urchin, right? Uh, our former pastor, his wife, Allison, uh, had some tweezers and was going to try to get them out of my foot, but it hurt so bad I wouldn't even let her do that. She tried to touch it and it, it hurt so bad. And so I just spent the whole rest of the week walking kind of on the side of my foot, trying not to put pressure on that part where those, where those things were. It hurt really bad, right? Uh, sometimes really small things like that can have a have a huge impact, uh, even on a uh, on, on something like a like a human, something much bigger than a small sea urchin or a small pebble or a or a tiny splinter. But they can have big big impacts, and we're going to see something similar uh, today as we uh, study this this letter to the church in Philadelphia, and it begins in Revelation chapter three, and it starts in verse seven. Here's what the Lord says. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, the one who opens and no one will shut, the one who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet 
and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And God, we thank you for your faithfulness. And God, we thank you that we can trust you. And God, I pray this morning your Holy Spirit will be at work here. And God, I pray that you would give us open ears, that we might hear what you have said to the church in Philadelphia, and that your Spirit might apply it to us here in this place, in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This letter uh, to the church in Philadelphia is structured a little bit differently than the other letters that we've studied so far, right? Most of the other sermons that we've had through the other letters up to this point uh, have really had two points, right? What the, what the Lord says good about the church and then what the Lord says negative or, or challenging to the church. Uh, but this letter is not set up that way. This letter, um, like, the, like the, the letter to the church in Smyrna, there is no negative, there is no challenge. Everything the Lord says about this church is, is positive, and so in this letter, we have a section about Jesus, and then we have a section about the church in Philadelphia, and then we have four promises that Jesus makes to his church, okay? And that's how we're going to look at it today. But before we get started, I want you to look at the very last verse, verse 13. And this is true of many of the letters, perhaps even all the letters. I didn't look into it to, to be for sure. But in this letter, specifically, the last verse, verse 13 says, he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, okay? And so I just want to make the point before we go into the details of what this letter says that, that Jesus is writing this letter to the church in Philadelphia, right? But he says, let, you, let the one who has the ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he's writing this letter to Philadelphia, but it's not just to Philadelphia, okay? And I think he's instructing us through it. I think we can learn from it. I think we can follow their example. Um, and I think we can take the promises that he makes to them and we can apply them to us as well. And so I want us to, to have that in mind as we're going through this letter. That yes, he's writing to the church in Philadelphia and they're a specific church in a specific place with a specific uh, situation that, that's around them. Um, but he also says, let the churches hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay? So he starts out with uh, talking about himself and he gives them three things about himself. Jesus tells the church three things about himself or reminds them three things um, about himself. And as it turns out, as we see, as we keep going, uh, these are the, the three characteristics of Jesus that they needed to hear. These specifically apply to what's happening to them, and we'll see that as we go along. But the first thing he says is that he is the holy one and the true one. I'm the holy one and the true one. He is the true Messiah. Jesus is saying that he really is the Christ. He really is the Messiah. He really is the one that the Jews have been waiting on for thousands of years. He's the Holy One. This is a title for God in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, I am God. I'm holy. I'm righteous. I'm pure. And I'm true. I'm genuine. I'm the real Messiah. And I'm truthful. I'm faithful. I can be trusted. 
in Revelation 6, we'll get there in a few weeks, but in Revelation 6, these are uh, people that have, that have died as martyrs to the Lord, and they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I don't know if you count that, but he, they, they refer to him as sovereign Lord, holy and true. And Jesus says he is the holy one, he is the true one. You may be familiar with John chapter 14 where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, Jesus is the holy one, the true one. He is no false Messiah. He can be trusted. He can be relied on. The next thing he says is he tells them that he is the one who has the key of David. He's the one that has the key of David. This is a little bit, maybe a little bit obscure for us, but as you know, David was one of the, uh, one of the best kings in Old Testament Israel, kind of the epitome of what a faithful king who serves the Lord and serves the kingdom, serves his people, was to be like. Uh, and, and God made a promise with David, made a covenant with him. He promised him that he would always have someone on the throne, a descendant of David. His dynasty would last forever, the Lord said. Jesus' ancestry, if we look back to the, to the Gospels and his genealogy, his ancestry can be traced back to David. Here he's saying that I am the eternal king. I'm the promised king. I'm the one that God told you was going to come, and now here I am. One children's Bible calls him the forever king because he sits on the throne of David for forever. He's the one they've been waiting for, the one that's going to reign as God's perfect representative in his kingdom the king of God who's going to rule over the kingdom of God. The final thing he says about himself is he says, I'm the one who opens and no one closes and shuts and no one opens. No one undoes it. In Revelation chapter 1, he says, Fear not, for I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. In, in, in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the door. I'm the way into the Father, the way into the kingdom. And this is what he's saying here. He has all authority. He has all control over the doors to the kingdom, the entrance to the kingdom. The members of the church in Philadelphia can take heart. They can know that, that Jesus has total control and authority over their acceptance into God's kingdom. We're going to see here in a few minutes that that was something that was in question in the, in the city of Philadelphia among the church there. This would have been especially comforting them to hear the Lord himself say, I have the keys, I open, no one can shut, I shut, no one can open. I have control over that. After he tells them about himself, he, he tells them three things about the church, three things he knows about the church. So Philadelphia was a, was a pretty important city in this time. Philadelphia was kind of between uh, Smyrna and Sardis, two of the other churches that, that, that Jesus wrote letters to. Uh, sometimes it was called the gateway to the east uh, because it was kind of on the edge of the Roman Empire between like the, the kind of civilized uh, culture part of the empire and the, and the more wild pagan barbarian part of the, of the empire. Uh, many temples and religious festivals were held in Philadelphia. And in, in fact, one of the names for Philadelphia was the uh, Neocharis, which means the warden of the temple, because there were so many temples in, in this city. Again, he doesn't have anything negative to say about this church, all positive things like Smyrna. Some, some commentaries have, have offered different titles for this church in Philadelphia. Some have said it's the missionary church. Some have said it's the alive church. 
It's the revival church. It's the serving church. It's the Bible church. Jesus says three things about the church. He says, first of all, I know your works. He says, I know your works. Remember where where John saw Jesus back in the beginning of Revelation, back in chapter 1. He says this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a gleam of, of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. This is a description of Jesus in the very early part of chapter 1 of Revelation. And Jesus says that he is walking, or John says he sees one like a son of man, who is Jesus, walking among the lampstands. And later we're told the lampstands are the churches. And so Jesus knows the works of this church because Jesus is involved in this church. Jesus is not far off somewhere, but he knows his people. He knows his churches. He knows their works. He's aware of what's happening among his people. He knows the trials and difficulties that they're going through. He knows when his churches and people are being persecuted. He knows when his churches and his people are suffering and being mistreated. He knows when his churches and his people are looked down upon and disregarded. He also knows when his churches and his people are working and advancing the kingdom. He knows when the gospel is being proclaimed and when communities are being served. He knows when widows and shut-ins are being visited and cared for. He knows when people are being encouraged and needs are being met. He knows when people are being confronted with their sin and being brought back to repentance. He knows when people are spending time praying for other church members, the sick, the lost, community needs. Don't ever think that anything that you're doing for the kingdom is going unnoticed. Jesus knows the works of his churches. Don't ever think anything that you're doing for the kingdom is insignificant or ineffective or small. Jesus knows the works of his churches and the works of his people. Of course, this also means he knows when his people are idle, right, and and not working. But here, these words are a comfort to to the Philadelphian church. He says, I know your works. He also says, I know your opportunities. He also says, I know your opportunities. Not only does he, uh, does he know them, but he also provides them with opportunities. He set before them an open door, Jesus says. Behold, I've set before you an open door. So what is this door? What is he talking about here? There's, there's two things it could mean, okay? So, so the first thing is it could be kind of the same as what he's already said about how he opens and no one shuts. He shuts and no one opens, that he has the keys to the kingdom, that he is the authority over the kingdom. And so if, that, if that's what this is getting at, then he set before them an open door of salvation, and no one can shut that door. Entrance into the kingdom of God. But it may be something a little bit different from from that first reference to a door. In, in two different places, Paul uses this same reference, and here's, here's what he says. In 1 Corinthians 16, he says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And then later in Colossians, he says, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. 
Paul's talking about a door of opportunity that God has provided and presented to him. And, and we talk this way sometimes as well, don't we? We'll talk about one door opening and another door closing. We'll sometimes talk about a door, a door closed but a window opened or something like that, right? I'm inclined to think that, that what Jesus means here when he says I've, I've, I've set before you this open door, I think what he means here is the, the possibility of ministry, that he's given them opportunities to ministry. I'm setting an open door for ministry. He's setting an open door to the kingdom for those who respond to these opportunities for ministry and belief. And so in the end, these aren't really two, two different choices that are all that different, right? Because if he's opened up an opportunity for ministry to them, then what he's opened to them is an opportunity for them to lead others through the open door of the kingdom, right? By believing the gospel, trusting the gospel. So they're not all that different necessarily, but I think there is an emphasis here on, I'm giving you this opportunity. I'm opening the doors to you for these opportunities. The Philadelphian church has been, been given opportunity after opportunity for, for ministry. Remember, they're called the gateway to the east. There's a mixture of all different kinds of people, all different types of people even, from different parts of the world mingling in Philadelphia. They were the missionaries of, of Greek culture, Roman culture, to these bar barbarian and, and pagan areas, and, and now God's opening a possibility for them to, to spread the gospel as well. Again, not only does he know the opportunities they have, but he is the one who has set the open door before them. The Lord's provided us with many open doors for gospel ministry also, right? He has. I think about uh, the Dare to Care ministry that we do on Wednesdays. That's not something that we were looking to do, not something we were looking to get started at all. Dare to Care came to us and said, this other church has been hosting this, and they're no longer able to or no longer interested in, in doing it. Would you be interested in taking it over? It came to us. Right? When we, we do a lot of things with the, with the high school and the other schools in our, in our community, that started by the high school coming to us and saying, hey, we've got these kids that are playing on sports teams and they're not able to, they don't have enough time to go home and get something to eat and come back in time to catch the bus for the game. Would you be able to provide some meals for them every once in a while? That's not something we wanted to do, not something we, we didn't want to do it. We're, we're absolutely excited about doing that. But it's not something we were looking to do. It's something that the, church, the, the school came to us and asked us would you be willing to, to do this? God's opened lots of doors for us here, and he's opened doors for us internationally as well. I just mentioned we used to go on trips to St. Thomas. We've taken trips to Ecuador, to Mexico, uh, to eastern Kentucky. We've got the laymans that are, that are missionaries from our church now. Our church is supporting them. We've got other missionaries that our church supports, and God's working through them around the world. God has opened up lots of doors for ministry, lots of opportunities to serve people, to proclaim the gospel, and, and especially lots of, lots of ways to serve people and proclaim the gospel to people that we would not have come in contact with otherwise. There's lots of people that come through the Dare to Care line every Wednesday that we would not come in contact with other than through that opportunity, right? There are kids and coaches and other adults that we've come in contact with through uh, serving the, the, the schools and different sports teams and things around here that we would not have come in contact with and not had an opportunity to, uh, to share the gospel with but for that opportunity. How often do you look for and how often do you ask God what doors he might be opening for you? What, what opportunities he might be providing? What areas of ministry in our church you might be able to serve in? And what areas of ministry in, your, in, in other parts of your life might you be able to serve in? How you might be able to serve him in your workplace, in your family? And how often do you pray and ask God 
to open doors for you and to make you aware of the doors he has opened. A third thing he says about the church, he knows their works and he set this, the, these opportunities in front of them, set this open door before them. And the third thing he says is that he knows their faithfulness. He says he knows their, he knows their faithfulness. He says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The church in Philadelphia is described as only having a little power, right? You have but little power. They're a small church. They're kind of an insignificant church. They don't have much influence over the, the community where they are, the city where they are in Philadelphia. And yet Jesus says, you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. They stayed true to God's word, even in the midst of opposition and persecution, even when things were coming against them. We'll read about some of that in more detail in the, in the next verse, in verse 9. One commentator says the mark of a, of a great church is not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity, right? Sending overseas, but also sending here locally. The word is powerful. They're a church of little power, but they've kept his word, and they've not denied his name. And the word is powerful. Even churches that don't have a lot of influence in this world can have a great impact, can have a great influence. Just like a small pebble in your shoe or a splinter in your hand or a big, huge mama sea urchin that tried to drag me back to feed me to her kids, right? Those things, even though they're really small and tiny, can have big, huge impacts, and the church is the same way. Jesus knew the faithfulness of this small church, and he knew the impact their faithfulness had on those around them who heard their message. And he believed and walked through the door that Jesus had opened for them. They weren't flashy and they weren't polished and they weren't produced and all those kind of things, but they were faithful. They were faithful to the word and they didn't deny his name. And Jesus says he knows their works. He sees that. It's kind of our philosophy of ministry around here too, if you haven't, if you haven't noticed. We're not super flashy, right? We don't have everything always put together. Um, we don't have a lot of programs. We don't have a lot of strategies. But what we do want to do is be faithful to the word. We want to get opportunities to put the word in front of you. Get opportunities to explain the word, to believe the word, to trust the word, to follow the word. And we want to confess his name in everything that, that we do. He doesn't have anything negative at all to say about this church. He tells them about himself, these three things about himself. He tells them these three things that he knows about them. And then he goes into this, uh, this section, verses 9 through 12, where he gives them four promises, okay? There's four promises he gives to this church in Philadelphia, and I think these promises apply to us also. The first thing he says in verse 9 is he says he will defend his church. Jesus will defend his church, okay? I wanted this point to be Jesus will vindicate his church, but I thought vindicate was kind of maybe too big of a word to put on the kids' listing pages, so I changed it to he will defend his church. But really what I mean is he's going to vindicate his church, right? He's going to vindicate them. The truth is going to come to light in an undeniable way. In the end, their enemies, those that oppose them, are going to know the truth about who Jesus is and about who they are. You may remember back in uh, the letter to Smyrna, uh, back in chapter 2, Jesus mentioned the synagogue of Satan in that letter also. In this letter, he says, in verse 9, uh, he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan 
who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So what is this synagogue of Satan? Is this a group of Satan worshipers that offer human sacrifices and all this kind of stuff? I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's saying. It's not super clear who, who the synagogue of Satan is or, or why they're called that. Um, but, but I do think he gives us some, some hints here. He does say that, uh, that there are people who say they're Jews and are not but lie, right? What I think this is, I, I think it's a reference to the, to the Jewish community in Philadelphia, to the Jewish community in Philadelphia who deny that Jesus is the Messiah, right? You had some Jews who believed the gospel and became Christians, and you had other Jews who didn't, who denied that Jesus was the true Messiah, didn't follow him, and remained in their Jewish traditions. I think that's what he's meaning here. I don't think he calls them a synagogue of Satan because they're especially evil or because they're doing some kind of satanic rituals or sacrifices. I think he calls them that because they are, by definition, antichrist, right? The, the word antichrist gets a big, a lot of big publicity when we talk about the book of Revelation, and we'll get to some other passages later that, that might apply to that as well. But, but in, in John's letters, he says that you've heard the antichrist is coming, but many antichrists have already come, right? And to be an antichrist is just someone who is against Christ. And so he calls these, uh, these, these people, these, these, these Jews that have rejected him, the synagogue of Satan. And there's some reason to believe that perhaps even when these Philadelphian Jews became Christians and converted to, to Christianity, believed in Jesus, trusted in him, uh, they may have even been excommunicated from the synagogue. They might have been kicked out of the synagogue and not allowed to come back in. And perhaps this is part of what's going on when Jesus reminds them about himself, I'm the one who opens doors that no one closes and closes doors that no one opens, right? The, 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 the synagogue of Satan, these people who are refusing to, uh, to trust in Jesus as the Messiah and refusing to admit that he is the Lord, these people don't have authority over whether you're in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. Jesus says, I have that authority. I have that authority. And I'm going to vindicate you. At, at, at some point, they're all going to come to, to know this. Jesus opened the door to the kingdom to them, to anyone who trusts in him, and they've walked through it. He says they're going to come and, 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 and they're going to see the truth and they're going to bow down to them. Not physically bow down. They're not going to worship the church uh, like, like we might think of sometimes, someone bowing down before someone else. They're not going to do that. Some of these people, I think, are going to see the error of, the, of, the, of their ways, see the error of the mistakes that they made, and they're going to turn and, and believe in Jesus and trust in him through the open doors of ministry that he's provided to the church in Philadelphia. Through their preaching the gospel, some of these of the synagogue of Satan will turn and, and believe in Jesus. I think about Paul on his road to, uh, to Damascus. Remember Paul, he was Saul at that point, and he was persecuting Christians. He was a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says that list of, of, of characteristics he gives himself he was persecuting Christians, and he thought he was doing so in the service of the Lord. He was being, uh, he was being um, uh, jealous for the Lord, right? He was killing these Christians, persecuting these Christians because they were uh, blaspheming in his mind by worshiping Jesus, and yet on the way to Damascus, he's converted. The Lord reveals himself to him, and he turns from his error and believes in the Lord, and the Lord forgives those sins, right? That will happen to some, I think. Others, I think, are going to continue to reject him, though. There's some that are not going to believe, even if they have the gospel preached to them. But they are going to be humbled, and they are going to be forced to admit that Jesus is who he says he is, and that the church is really who they say that they are. Y'all are probably familiar with Philippians chapter 2, 
right, where Jesus, or where Paul says, therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That doesn't mean everyone's going to be converted, it doesn't mean everyone's going to believe, but it does mean everyone's going to see the truth and be forced to admit it, and be forced to bow down before it. This, this news would come as a comfort to the church in Philadelphia, right? Uh, this would be a comfort to, to them, and it should be a comfort to us also. We don't experience as much full-on persecution uh, in our context right now, uh, but that's, there's no guarantee that that won't happen at some point. Uh, Jesus told us that the world hates us because it hated him, and we should expect those things. There are thousands of churches made up of many, many believers around the world right now that are being persecuted. Some are meeting right now in secret places, singing songs in whispers so that they won't be detected, so they won't be overheard, so they won't be shut down. Some are threatened with death or violence. Some are threatened with, with, um, with economic hardships where they're not able to, to provide for themselves or get the, the things that they need to survive, like food and stuff like that. Some are meeting together in secret this morning, like I said. Some are being persecuted officially by government agencies, and, and, and others are being persecuted kind of unofficially by their community or by other religious groups while the government kind of turns a blind eye and allows it to happen. Jesus promises the Philadelphian church and us and, and these other churches that whatever wrongs they've experienced for following him, they will be made right. He will vindicate his church. He will defend his church. The second promise he makes is that Jesus will protect his church. Jesus will protect his church. Look at verse 10. In verse 10 it says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Jesus promises them that because they've been faithful to him, they've kept his word, he's going to keep them from this hour of trial that's coming. We don't have a lot of time today to go into uh, detail about this coming trial. It, th this same topic comes up again in chapter 6 and goes on for several chapters after that, and so we'll talk about it in more detail as we come to those chapters. But, uh, but we do need to say a few things about it at least, right? Um, I, and I do think this is the same trial he's talking about that, that comes later, sometimes called the Great Tribulation. Um, I think it's probably the, the, the same trial. Um, and, and here's what we see here about the trial. Number one, it's coming. A trial is coming. Okay? Number two, it's going to be a universal trial. It's going to be uh, over the whole world. And number three, the purpose is going to be to try those that dwell on the whole earth. Okay? One commentator, Leon Morris, says uh, that John usually uses this expression, uh, those who dwell on the, on, the, on the earth, those who dwell on the whole earth. Uh, Paul, John usually uses that expression to mean the pagan world or the unbelieving world. Okay? And so what he's saying here is that uh, this is going to be a demonstration of God's wrath on the world, but he's bringing this trial, this trial first, right? And it says this is kind of a mercy on God's part, uh, evidence of God's mercy, because he's sending this trial to give them a final chance to repent and believe and turn back to him before that final judgment, before that final judgment comes. The promise that's being made here, though, Jesus promised in his church that he's going to keep them from this trial. He's going to keep them from this trial, okay? Now, that's a loaded phrase, uh, and there's lots of, lots of where, places we could go, lots of, lots of things we can say about that, but, um, but we don't have time to say a whole lot today. 
but but I do want to say say these kind of two things. First of all, many pastors that 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 and, and scholars that I respect and 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 have learned a lot from believe that this is a reference to what's called the rapture. Right? And you've heard about that before. You've probably, probably read the Left Behind books and, 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 and heard that before, the rapture. And so they believe that, that, that sometime before this trial comes or, or perhaps even in the middle of the trial or some even at the end of the trial, they believe that, uh, that Jesus is going to remove the church from, from the world, from the earth. He's going to uh, take all believers that are alive at that time and they're going to send to heaven to be with him uh, during this time. So they will not suffer through this trial or great tribulation as it's called later, right? Uh, Jesus is going to keep them from this worldwide time of trouble by removing them from the world. So they're not going to be here. Okay. Many other pastors that I respect and, and, uh, and, and have learned from uh, don't think that's the case. They, they think that, that what's going to happen here is um, uh, that there's not going to be a rapture. Um, that when, when, when John says, or when Jesus says here that he's going to keep the church uh, from this time of trial, he's not saying he's going to remove the church from the earth so that, there's, so that they're not going to be here for the trial. He's saying, he's promising them uh, that he's going to keep them through it. He's going to help them to endure, help them to, uh, to remain faithful. Uh, Garth read this morning our scripture reading from John chapter 17 where Jesus is praying a prayer uh, for his people, for his believers, for the disciples, and for those that will believe through their word. And he says this in a couple of verses, uh, verses 14, 15, 16. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world the world. This is the same expression that John uses here when he says, keep them from the evil one. That's the same expression in Revelation where he says, keep them from the hour of trial. It's the same, the same Greek language, same, same Greek words. It's, it's the same expression. And here in this, in this prayer, he's saying, I want you to, I'm praying that you'll keep them from the evil one, but he's saying, don't keep them from the evil one by taking them out of the world, right? Because he says, I didn't pray that you'd take them out of the world but that you would keep them from the evil one. So here, when he says keep them from the evil one, what he means is protect them from the evil one. Help them to endure the evil one, right? And I, and I think it's the same thing in, in this passage in Revelation. Again, we'll get more details about that as we come in, in later chapters, and, and we'll look at that in more detail, but that's, that's what I think. He's going to protect them. He's going to keep them as this trial is happening. They're going to endure. He's going to continue to be their protector, their keeper, and ours. Doesn't necessarily, this does not necessarily mean that, that nothing bad will ever happen to them, right? They're, they're, there's going to be bad things that, that happen. Hardships or difficulties are going to come. It doesn't even mean that they're not going to face abuse or arrest or violence or perhaps even death. If you remember from the letter to Smyrna, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus is telling the church in Smyrna specifically, bad things are gonna happen. Some of you even are gonna die, but I'm gonna keep you through it. I'm going to protect you through it. I'm going, to, I'm going to keep you faithful, keep you holding on to the gospel, enduring through these things that are happening. 
The third promise that Jesus makes, he's going to defend his church or vindicate his church. He's going to keep his church, protect his church. The third thing he says is that he's going to establish his church. Jesus is going to establish his church. When we get to verse 12, uh, we're going to skip verse 11 for a second, come back to it. But in verse 12, he says, uh, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down, which comes down from heaven, uh, comes down from my God out of heaven, and he's also going to put his own new name on them. He's going to make them a pillar in the temple of his God, he says. Uh, Philadelphia was known for uh, having lots of earthquakes. In AD 17, there was a major earthquake that kind of destroyed the whole town and had to be rebuilt. And, and often in those earthquakes, the only thing that would be left in the whole town, the whole city, the only thing that would be left were these, these big pillars that had held up the temples to the idols. And so I think here when Jesus is saying, I'm going to make you a temple, or I'm going to make you a, a pillar in the temple of my God, I think what he's saying is, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you security and give you permanence. You're going, to, you're going to be lasting, right? Uh, Paul uses something, says something similar. He says that the church is the, the pillar and the buttress of the truth that holds up the word, that proclaims the word to the world. And it's, there's, a, there's a stability there. There's a permanence there. There's a, there's a security there, a, 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 a strength there. He's also going to write these names on them. He's going to write the name of God, he says, on them. I think this is saying that they're going to be God's possession. They're going to be God's people, they're going to clearly be seen as his people. He's going to write the name of the city, the New Jerusalem. I think this is a, a saying that they're going to have a true citizenship, a real citizenship. He's going to write the name. Uh, he's going to write um, the name of God, the name of the city, and then it says he's going to write his own new name. Again, I think this is possession that they're God, they're, they're Jesus's ownership, but also that they have this new identity, this new character in. Christ. It's going to be permanently stamped on them for all to see. Together, these, these three things come together to, to, to almost like a passport or visa that would give someone the right to enter into a certain land or a certain place because they belong there. They're citizens there. This certifies their true belonging. This would have been great news for the church who's been persecuted in Philadelphia, not really fitting around, filling in in the city of Philadelphia, although that's their home, that's their city, uh, and, and, and yet there's some, there's some tension there, right? And I, we should feel some, some of the same tension in our own lives. We're citizens of the United States, citizens of Kentucky, of Louisville, and there's certain rights that go along with that, and we want to be good citizens in, 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 in those different spheres. We do. We want to be really good citizens in, in those spheres. And, and yet there's also a tension to where we're also citizens of the kingdom of God. And those two, those two cities or those two kingdoms there's, there's, there's some inconsistencies. The values are different. The character is different. The morality is different. What we believe is true is different. And so while we're here, living here, we want to be good citizens here, and, and yet we also feel this pull that, that we're, we don't really belong here. And Jesus is saying that we're going to be full citizens of the kingdom when it comes in its fullness. He's going to stamp us with the name of God, his own new name, with the, God, the name of the city, and we'll be rightful, rightful citizens of the kingdom. Finally, he tells them, promises them that he's going to come for his church. We see this in verse 11. He says, I will come for you. Behold, I will come for you. Jesus promises his church that he's coming soon. The king of the kingdom is, is coming. And so I want to ask us, this may be a weird question to you, but, but hold on to me. 
or, or hold on as we go along. Um, Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is it a good thing? Some saying good thing? The answer is it depends. Okay? So, so listen to Revelation chapter 2. This is the letter to Ephesus. Jesus says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from the place unless you repent. Jesus is saying, I'm coming soon, but when I get there, I'm going to remove your lampstand. To the, to the church in Pergamum, he says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's not a good coming. To the church in Sardis, he says, Remember them what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. That's not a good coming either, right? Jesus is coming to these three churches. He's coming against them. So is the coming of the Lord a good thing or a bad thing? The answer is it, it depends. It depends on where we stand with him, what our relationship is. One of my friends took his son to the zoo to Back several years ago, his son was really young, probably three or four or five years old, something like that, and they went to the, to the lion enclosure where the, where the lions are, right? You don't always see a lion when they're there because it's so big, um, but they did see a lion that day. It was pretty far away, and, and this time the lion just so happened, the lion roared, right? And the lion was really far away, but still, when he roared like that, my, my friend said his son just kind of instinctively got behind his legs, like hid behind his legs. And, and my friend was thinking, he's a pastor, and he was thinking, you know, if you're out in the jungle somewhere and you hear the lion roar, is that good or bad? If you're a zebra, it's bad, right? If you're a zebra, it's bad because it means the lion's coming to get you. He's coming against you, right? But if you're a lion cub, it's good because it means your dad, the lion, is coming to protect you, coming to save you, coming to, uh, to get, you know, get, get rid of any opponents that might come against you. And the same thing's true with, with Jesus' coming. It depends on our situation, depends on our relationship to him. To the churches in Sardis and Pergamum and Ephesus, Jesus' coming was a bad thing. But to the church in Philadelphia, his coming would have been a comfort to them. Because he's not coming against them, he's coming for them. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says that, that, that his church, or that, that we, his church, wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and he calls this our blessed hope. This is our blessed hope. Should be a comfort for us also that the Lord is coming. He is our blessed hope. It's our only hope. And when he comes, he's going to vindicate us. He's going to establish us for all to see. And we can trust him to keep us until, until that day comes. The final thing that I want us to see in, in, in this letter is in verse 11. The second part of verse 11. He says... Uh, he's given them these four promises, and now he gives them this, this, uh, this, um, this command. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. This is the only command he gives them in the whole letter. He tells them to hold fast what they have, and so we need to ask, what do they have? What is it they're supposed to hold fast to? The truth of these promises, I think, for one, that the Lord is for them, that whatever we go through here, we can trust that he's going to be for us and that he's working for us. They have the word as well. God's given them his word, and they've held on to it so far. They've kept his word. We should hold fast to his word as well. What the word says is true. 
is true. What it says is good is good. What it says is right is right. They also have the gospel. Let us hold fast to the gospel as well. He's delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Let us live as, king, as citizens of that kingdom. And they have this blessed hope of his return. Has this blessed hope of, of his return. He's coming for us. But until that day, he's not left us alone. He gave us his word, he gave us his spirit, and he's given us each other. He's also given us a, a, a visual reminder of these things. He's given us a visual reminder of these things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes this, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're doing two things. We're looking backwards to Jesus' death. That's the foundation of our, of our righteousness, the foundation of our forgiveness, the foundation of our, of our being accepted by God. We look backwards proclaiming his death, but we also look forward, looking to his return. He says we do this until he returns. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to come back and this meal is going to be done. We're not going to do this meal anymore because we're going to have him face to face. This is a reminder that he is coming, a reminder that that's going to happen. One of the ways that we hold fast what we have is, is, is by this meal. It's a visual demonstration that we're continuing to trust what he has done for us and what he's going to do for us. As we do it together, we're proclaiming to each other the Lord's death and the Lord's coming. We're reminding each other of the truths of the gospel that we've believed. We're encouraging each other as they see us committed taking the Lord's Supper. And we're being encouraged by one another as we see each other. And we're reminding ourselves that we're not in this alone, but we're in this together. We're following Jesus together. We're holding fast what he's given us together. And we're waiting for his return together.